0: God to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 as we continue our study this uh, uh, magnificent chapter on the defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of believers in him. Our passage this morning is verses 20 through 28. Here is the infallible inspired and errant word of God. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are with him at his coming. And then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. Let's ask God's help. Grant to us, Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and do those things which You command, that we may by You be enabled to live according to Your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. But well, just reading that passage alive, give you uh, out loud gives a sense of the difficulty and the complexity of the passage. I basically was going to begin this morning by simply introducing the passage by saying it's hard. It's hard, and the more you look at it, the more you begin to see of uh, the richness of the passage, of uh, the depth of its texture, and the substance of its doctrine. I think that just reading it and hearing the words out loud already lead us to think in that way, and I apologize uh, at the beginning of our message that we're just not going to be able uh, to dig into everything that's in the passage here this morning. I'll do my best to cover the text, But then this is a passage no doubt we'll have to return to uh, many times in the future to mine out the depths and riches uh, of what God has prepared for us here in this inspired portion of His Word. But maybe this will help us as we begin to pick and weave our way through this passage is remember what the overarching theme of this passage is and the overarching theme and this should help us connect the dots to remember the overarching theme of verses 20 through 28 is the guarantee it's all about the guarantee of of the bodily resurrection of believers and you'll see here in verses 20 through 23 we have two powerful certifications We have two infallible certifications and assurances of the bodily resurrection of believers based upon the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to get into in our first point. How the resurrection of Christ is to us and to the church a guarantee of the resurrection of believers. But now before we dig into that, I want us to pause a moment on those first two words, but now. To sort of help us get back into the context and the flow of thought. But now. And we said as we looked at those two words last time as we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. That those two particular words speak a thousand words of relief. Because in the verses prior to this, Paul has been taking on a particular difficulty in the church at Corinth. And the particular difficulty is that someone has got the ear of some of the people in the congregation. And they're basically teaching them that the best way to enjoy eternal fellowship with God is through a bodiless eternal existence. In other words, what they're saying is the body is a liability. It's a hindrance to true, spiritual, eternal fellowship with God. And so it seems that the substance of the teaching and the implication of the teaching was to say that there isn't going to be a bodily resurrection of believers in the end. Now, uh, Paul addresses that problem by sort of going at it by showing uh, what would be true if that was true. Remember, we talked about this last time. Uh, Paul sort of gets underneath the doctrine and he says, here are the logical implications of that position. If you are going to say that there is no bodily resurrection of believers at the end of the age, this is also what has to be true. And he fashions one overarching logical truth, and then he develops four implications from that. But you can see that one overarching logical truth. If believers don't rise at the end of the age bodily, you see it in verse 13. He says, If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. See, there it is. If you're going to believe this position, the Apostle Paul says, then you're also going to have to say that Jesus did not Himself rise from the dead either. That's the overarching idea. And then there are four implications that follow from that. He goes on to say in verse 14, if that's true, apostolic preaching is vain. In other words, it lacks content and truth. And the apostles are all just false witnesses. The second implication is that faith is vain. It's empty. It's useless. And the reason why it's empty, vain, and useless is because Jesus Christ is not on high, reigning at the right hand, bestowing faith as a gift upon his elect in order they may turn unto him for salvation. The fourth implication of this is that the dead who have already perished, have perished forever. There's absolutely no hope for bodily resurrection. We find that in verse 18. And then in verse 19, he sort of caps off the list of miseries and woes by saying uh, that... If this is true, if there is no bodily resurrection, if Christ really didn't rise from the dead bodily, then Christians are of all people and all religions the most miserable. Now, that's a bad day. That gives you a bad day if you have staked your entire a hope for the future based upon the truth of the Christian gospel. What Paul has just done here is just ripped Christian faith to shreds if there is no bodily resurrection. That's why those words, but now, are so enormous. You see, at the end of our message last time, we couldn't help it. In order to encourage our hearts, we could walk away with joy. We just uh, peeked forward into verse 20, and we just uh, gently uh, treaded upon verse 20, where he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And the whole point that we wanted to develop there is that that but now signals that everything Paul has just said is false. It's not true. We said we could turn uh, all of those implications inside out. But now there is a resurrection of the body. But now apostolic preaching is fruitful. But now faith really is the instrument of justification. But now deceased believers are in Christ and we will see them again. But now Christianity is the only faith that makes life meaningful and brings real joy. You see, if, if this but now is true, it changes everything. The apostles are not false witnesses, and God has not falsely been testified about. But now we have to dig into verse 20 to see here the guarantee. That's what Paul is trying to do here in verses 20 through 28. He is trying to place our hope of a resurrection, of a bodily resurrection in the future, upon very firm footing. And as I said, he gives us two guarantees here in the first few verses. And the first guarantee is uh, very easy to get at. It says Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. The first fruits. That term uh, is an Old Testament term. First fruits. Uh, Anthony Hokoma uh, comments on it and points out. Uh, That the language here is from the Old Testament and describes the first products or the flocks which were offered to God during harvest time. And what they all were was, was a down payment and a guarantee that the rest of the harvest is going to come in. You see. There was certainty, it was underscoring the certainty of a bountiful harvest. Now the Apostle Paul, using that term here and applying it to Jesus Christ, is doing that to aim at putting our assurance of hope on certain ground by saying that our resurrection is inseparably attached to Christ's resurrection. And if Christ rose bodily from the dead, it's certain that you will because he's first fruit. Now, just to underscore uh, the assurance of that for us, Christ did rise. All you have to do is go back and look at the whole series of proofs and eyewitness testimony that he gave uh, from verse 3 forward to assure us that there is a bodily resurrection based upon the fact that Christ himself did rise from the dead. So he first of all says, your uh, bodily resurrection is guaranteed because Christ is the first fruits. Now verse 21 and 22 uh, what Paul is going to do is unfold for us the structural reason why that's the case. The structural reason why. This is what uh, sort of holds up this concept of first fruits. And the reason why uh Christ's resurrection is a first fruits is because Christ is our covenant head. Now verse 21 you kind of see the logic of the case. Four important to see here that Paul is with that word say, whatever follows in verse 21 and 22 is the ground or the basis for why we can be assured that our resurrection is certain based upon Christ being the first fruits. But the logic of it is at least laid out here. He says, since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now, that's not quite the firm footing that we want, but fortunately now Paul goes on in verse 22 to connect the ideas a little bit more. Beginning in verse 22, he says, four. Again, giving explanation for why it's the case that by a man will come the resurrection of the dead. And here's the, the argument. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You see, the assurance that we have that Christ is the firstfruits and the certification and the guarantee of our own resurrection is because Christ is our covenant head. Now, it's fascinating what the Apostle Paul does here. He comprehends all of God's dealings under two men. You see that in the first part of verse 22 in Adam, and you see that in the second part of verse 22 in Christ. They're just two different people that God deals with all of humanity through. Adam and Christ. John Murray does a fabulous job making an airtight case for the fact that there's only uh, these two men that God deals through all uh, humanity with. He says there's none before Adam. He's the first man. There's none between Adam and Christ because Christ is the second Adam. And we know that. Already from 1 Corinthians 15.45. And then he says, there's none after Adam, because Christ is the last Adam. Now you think about that, and it makes logical, clear sense. God is only dealing with the world through the first Adam, and through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. These two men sustain very, very unique relationships to humanity. Now it's not unfolded here, but you need to turn with me to Romans 5 in order to see how Paul um, fleshes this idea out of the two covenant headships of these two Adams. We're going to concentrate almost primarily here on Adam, but if you see uh, the covenant headship of Adam, then you can clearly see the covenant headship of Jesus Christ and why that then certifies uh, that Christ's, Resurrection is the first fruits of our own bodily resurrection. But here Paul is unfolding uh, the fact that justification is by faith alone and it is by the imputation of Christ's obedience to us. That's what's going on in these verses. But in order to unfold that, he sets up two contrasts here between Adam and between Christ. But he engages our attention by talking about death in verse 12. He says, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, here is the overarching truth that that gets us into thinking about this business of imputation. Uh, Paul is uh, basically posing a question. How can it be that all have died and all do die? And his answer to that is because all have sinned. And you say, well, how is it that all have sinned? Well, Paul unfolds the logic of that by saying, well, sin and consequently death are the result of this one man. And he says, just as through one man, sin entered. Now, when you hear that language of just as, it makes you think that Paul is setting up a comparison. And what you would expect is, in the first part of the comparison, he would say, just as it is the case in such and such a case, so it is also true if this are true. But you'll notice, as you look at verse 12, that Paul doesn't complete the comparison. If you look at uh, verse 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, you also find that he doesn't complete the comparisons there either. But then when you hit verse 18 and 19, you see the comparison, and you begin to understand what Paul is driving at. He says in verse 18, So then, as... There's your beginning of your comparison. Just as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so... Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Verse 19, you have another comparison, the finished comparison, if you will. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now it's very clear that in both verses you have Finished sets of comparisons. You have the just as and you have the so also. So Paul puts it all together, and what emerges from this is these two covenant headships. Uh, you have uh, one man and one sin, and that affecting everybody. Verse 18. Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. One act is imputed to all. And then verse 19 again, for as through one man, disobedience. You see, Paul is setting up here a case. Adam is responsible. Adam's actions, Adam's sin has now been imputed to all those who are in him covenantally, and they all die. Well, it doesn't take long to think about this passage in view of Uh, all of Scripture to realize that what Paul is doing is reflecting back on Genesis 3. Uh, He's thinking back of the situation of the garden. He's thinking about the situation where God has come to Adam and He has told him that Adam can have all of the trees of the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he attached a sanction to that. He said, if you eat that tree in the day you do, you will surely die. Well, you know the rest of the story. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam actually eats when confronted by the temptation of Satan. And of course, God cursed Adam and all his posterity. That's precisely the particular historical situation that that Paul was reflecting on here. That's the one act and that's the one man. And as the result, all are standing condemned and all are dying. But you see, the opposite is true in Jesus Christ the second Adam. Thankfully, the comparison is finished here in verse 18 and 19. It's not like verse 12, which just has bad news. All die because all sin. Notice he finishes it off in verse 18. He says, even so, that's the rest of the comparison, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Look at the second half of verse 19. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. You see, here's your second Adam. And all who are represented by him, the Apostle Paul says, have justification, they're freed from condemnation, and they are given life. Now, I realize that that's that's a lot to compress into just a few minutes of explanation. Uh, but we have to manage this somehow and bring it back to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 because Paul is definitely working with these covenantal categories. That is the structural reason why it is that Christ is the first fruits of our own resurrection. He says in verse 22, As in Adam, all die. Well, why is it that all die at Adam? Well, because Adam is the covenant head of humanity. And because of his failure, because of his transgression, because of his violation of the covenant of works, we know from other writings of Paul that all are condemned. And because of that, all are dying. All stand guilty before God. Certain. It's undeniable because of the unbreakable bond between Adam and those who he represents, but then you have the second half. So also in Christ. You see, the certainty of the second half is just as sure as the certainty of the first half. Are all all, all dying? Yes. It's it's, um, undisputably true. They're all dying because they're in covenant with Adam. He represented them. And in His disobedience, they disobeyed. And in that disobedience, they died. They stand condemned. The other half is just as certain for us. So also in Christ, all were made alive. All who are in Him, all who are in Him participate in His redemptive work. You see? So what happened to Christ is sure to happen to you. He obeyed. He was vindicated and he was filled with life. God raised him from the dead. And you see, that's the certainty now that underscores, that's the foundation, the deep theological foundation, which is underneath uh, this declaration and promise in verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. We can be assured that our resurrection in the future will certainly follow because Christ did. Those are huge theological guns to take out against this particular false ideology. But in a sense, uh, nothing less would do. I mean, nothing less but the gospel is at stake. Nothing less than the whole substance and truth of Christianity is at stake. So so Paul brings out these enormous theological categories and he says, here's why what you are hearing can't be right. (coughs) Right? Christ is the covenant head. And whatever happened to him has to happen to you. That's just the way God deals. So the first uh, theological truth which is given for us to certify and to guarantee our, uh, our own bodily resurrection and to counteract this false doctrine is that Christ has been raised from the dead. And whatever happens to the covenant head happens to you. Now that brings us to the second truth. Uh, The second aspect of Paul's argument here to assure us and to guarantee for us that um, we also will rise bodily in the future. And it's a lot more complicated. And to be honest with you, i would never seen this in all my years of studying out 1 Corinthians 15. uh, Because it seems strange uh, that Paul is speaking on the one hand about covenant headship and how it certifies our own resurrection, then he switches to kingship. He, he starts talking about the kingship of Jesus Christ. And you begin to wonder, what in the world is he doing here? Then he, uh, we fast forward into what appears to be uh, eschatology. A- and on the surface of it, it's okay to see that there are rich uh, theological truths here about the end times. We really do sort of have Uh, a spelling out of some of the events of the end times. For instance, verse 23 says, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are His at His coming. Verse 24, then comes the end. We have a, 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 a time frame here of the last days. Paul is telling us, well, Christ the first fruits, and we know that happened 2,000 years ago, but then in the future, Christ is going to return, and with His return is going to be the resurrection from the dead, and when that happens, then the end comes. And then he spells it out just a little bit more even in verse 24. He tells you when the end is going to come. He says, when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. See, there is sort of an unfolding of end times events. But that's not why this passage is in the Bible. Eschatology is not Paul's main point here, and we know that because of the very first word of verse 25. For. Now Paul is giving an explanation for something. Paul is giving an explanation. And really the explanation is for the very last phrase in verse 24. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. We have to back up. And I realize this is very tedious. Uh, it's, it's hard to follow in a sense. It's a very complicated uh, passage of Scripture. In fact, I've heard preachers talk about this being uh, one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible to preach on. So, uh, I, I'm not using that as an excuse, I'm just saying these are complicated, enormous ideas and intricate argumentation, but but see if you can track with me for a moment. One thing that will help us understand Paul's point is this. We need to clarify a little bit here in the translation Notice verse 24 says, Then comes the end. And I said, Paul clarifies for us when that end is going to occur. The end, first of all, he says, is going to occur when Jesus hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. That's when the end's going to come. Now, probably in your translation it says when in the next word there. Well, that's a bad translation. That's mine too, and it's wrong. It's after." Okay? You say, ooh, that doesn't help me very much either. But think about it for a second. If we plug it all together, it would read like this. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Now that sort of pieces the timeline a little bit more together here because he says the end can only come after Jesus has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. See, the end can't come until Jesus does that. Now you connect that with verse 25. He says, 4. 4 is giving you the reason why the end can't come until Jesus abolishes all rule, authority, and power. Say it again. 25 is explaining why the end can't come until after Jesus has abolished all rule and authority and power. Here's why. He must reign. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. He must reign. Well, Paul is quoting from Psalm 110.1. He's quoting from Old Testament prophecy, and he's saying it's a prophetic necessity that Christ reigns and abolishes All rule and authority and power before the end can come when Jesus delivers up the kingdom of the Father. It has to happen that way. But now, he explains or adds to that list of enemies that must be subdued. And this gets us back into uh, why this passage is here, why this information is here, and how it functions within this passage. Because verse 26 says, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Okay, here's what's going on. Paul has just given you the prophetic necessity for why the end can't come until Christ abolishes all of His enemies. And now in verse 26, he adds one last climactic enemy. Death. Christ has to defeat it before the end. Christ has to to defeat death publicly and visibly before He delivers the kingdom up to His Father. Now, what's so fascinating about Paul's argument here is in verse 27, he adds another Old Testament passage. This time he's adding Psalm 8. He says, For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. You see, the reason why Paul says the last enemy has to be abolished, which is death, before Jesus hands over the kingdom, is again, prophetic necessity. God has said in His Word that He has put all things under uh, the subjection of Christ's feet. That has to happen. That has to happen. Before the end comes when Jesus delivers over the kingdom to the Father. Now, just to show you how comprehensive that subjection of all things is, Paul goes on to say in 27. And it it almost sounds picky, but it's not. He says, right after he quotes Psalm 8.6, he says, But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And that's probably at the point when you're reading this passage, you say, wow, my head is spinning. And mine did too, as I was thinking through this all week long, trying to grasp what Paul is saying. But it but it, it makes perfect sense. It's just it's just a compact a lot in there. What he is saying is the only one who isn't included under the subjection of all things is God the Father. He's saying God is not under the rule of Jesus, but everything else is. Now you think about it. What is the most powerful thing you can think of outside of God? Death. No one has defeated it, except for Jesus in His own resurrection. And now when He returns, He is going to publicly manifest His power over it, because when He comes, the graves will open up and we will experience the resurrection of the body. That's what Paul is arguing here. He's turning to the kingship of Jesus Christ. He's saying, this is the second reason why there must be a bodily resurrection of believers. It's because it's a part of Christ's kingly rule. In fact, you could say that if Jesus doesn't raise believers from the dead, he's not king. This is an amazing argument the Apostle Paul makes here. He's This passage, verse 24 and following, is not in the Bible primarily so that we can figure out and have an eschatology timesheet. It's primarily about, and it does tell us about the end, but it's primarily about exalting the kingship of Jesus Christ. It's about proclaiming to us His power over death. And how before the end comes, he has got to put his foot on the neck of that enemy to show that he is superior, he is more sovereign, he is more powerful than death itself. And when he puts his neck to the foot of death, what he has just done is showed the completion of His redemptive work. You see, that was the point of His coming. The point of His coming was to stand victoriously as second Adam, and not to only obey the probationary test, uh, test, but to advance in kingdom glory and bring everyone who He represented with Him. In other words, He had to come and stick a dagger in the heart of death and destroy it to loose us us from its power, to overcome its its curse in order to fully redeem us and all of the elect and prepare for kingdom consummation. That's uh, what Paul is arguing here. And when Jesus has done that, then Paul says, when all things are subjected to Him, then, this is verse 28 now, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. That's just an expansion now on verse 24 when it says the end comes when He hands over all rule. What Paul is saying is that once Jesus has definitively and climactically stomped out all of His enemies, there's no need for Him to rule as the God-man over the universe. But right up unto that moment, right up unto the moment before He abolishes and destroys and crushes under His feet all of His enemies, it's essential, it's a requirement that the Son of God clothed in our flesh is the ruler of the universe. Because he has to eliminate every single obstacle and enemy and opponent of his redemptive work. But once he's done that, once he has abolished his enemies, rule, authority, power, and death, There's nothing to stop the consummation of His redemptive work. There's nothing to stop the kingdom of God coming with power. There's nothing to stop the glorification of our body. There's nothing to stop us from enjoying our heavenly inheritance forever and ever. So Paul appeals secondly to the kingship of Christ. First of all, he appealed to Christ as our covenant head, as the guarantee of our bodily resurrection. And then now he appeals to the kingship of Jesus Christ, which is a rule and a kingdom which must destroy all of its enemies and opponents in order for us to receive the resurrection of the body. Uh, Paul brings out the largest theological ideas I think you can come up with. Because I, I could start ticking them off. We, you know, we have a covenant, we have eschatology, we have depravity, we have this kingship, uh, we have uh, economical and ontological trinity categories. We've got all kinds of theology in this passage. Like I said, we, can, we can't even touch it all because there's so much here. But he brings all of these things out to do one thing well, two things, really to assure believers that there really is a resurrection of the body at the end of the age. And it's a necessity. And he does that to refute the false ideology and the false theology that is spreading. Just a couple of words by application as we we wind to conclusion. It's something that the church has always had to combat. Not just here, but if you look in the pastoral epistles, and then you look immediately after all the apostles died, the sub apostolic era of the church, and then beyond, one of the most important theological battles the church had to face was this idea that the best spiritual life is a spiritual life without a body. It's true. Gnosticism uh, tried to to grab hold of the heart of Christianity and, and clutch it within its death grip and destroy it by telling people that really the best and the most efficient and the most intensely personal form of relationship with God is one that we have apart from our body and apart from our flesh. What it tells us, even today... In all different forms of false Christianity and a lot of forms of false spirituality that are saturating, saturating the religious environment, is that the best way to get close to God is to get rid of your flesh. Well, you know what this morning, people of God, the Word of God tells you otherwise. It says, the fact that the soul and the body separates is a sign that God's angry. It's a sign of a problem in your relationship with God. The only way to overcome that is to find wholeness of body and soul in Christ, the covenant head, who is the second Adam, who defeats death by putting His feet upon its throat and stomping it out in order to secure our bodily resurrection. So we must be warned against false spirituality which says that your body and the physical nature of your being is an obstacle to true spirituality and relationship with God. No, people of God, you are having relationship with God every moment that you're in the flesh. All of your life is lived before the very presence of God. The other thing that I want us to think about here as we walk away from our passage... And there's so many other things that it's hard to pick a final thing, but this thing that I really do want us to walk away thinking about, uh, because it, it so freshly impressed me as I was thinking upon this passage and realizing how it is, in a sense, the linchpin to Paul's argument here. The kingship of Jesus Christ. The kingship of Jesus Christ comes through powerfully in this passage in a very practical way. And notice uh, that we're told here by the Apostle Paul in verse 25 that Christ must reign until he has subdued his enemies. And then the last enemy is death, that he must subdue that. But last means last in a sequence of events. Death is the very last enemy that he must crush. But it's the last in a sequence. And Paul says he must reign until he crushes that enemy fatally. But what does that tell you? It tells you what you already know. Christ is reigning right now. And you know what? That, that, that thought is stamped across the Old Testament. One of the most frequently quoted passages of the Old Testament is Psalm 110, which speaks of Christ's kingship. But all across the New Testament, you have uh, this emphatic and repeated testimony of Christ's rule. We're told that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father reigning. He is on a throne in heaven. He is reigning over His kingdom. He is now exercising dominion. He is ruling over the kings of the earth. He's king now and He's ruling now. One commentator looking at that, this unmistakable testimony to the presence of Christ's reign, says this, the New Testament abundantly confers that Christ is reigning presently and is thus progressively, progressively putting His enemies under His feet. He's progressively doing that. And what does that tell us this morning? Well, it tells us this morning that if we have eyes to see it, we are seeing the unfolding of Christ's kingship and of His rule and of His conquest as we speak. Not just in His rule over nature, but but in His conquest over His enemies and and, and His conquering them every single time uh, an unregenerate person comes to Christ in faith and repentance. Every single time somebody's eyes open up to see the truth of Scripture and their ears open up and their heart opens up so that they can believe, Christ is displaying the power of His kingship. Every single time a a strange sinner who goes off and is under discipline is brought back to Jesus Christ, what you have there is the display of Christ's kingship. Every single time you have a believer preserved and sustained against sin and against temptation, what do you have? You have a manifestation and a display of His kingship because He is putting down, He is crushing the enemies of His kingdom. And so what we are treated to see, people of God, is a progressive a progressive unfolding of Christ's kingdom. We will see a series of victories of Christ defeating His foes. That's the blessing to the church. Not to embolden us to know this morning, particularly as we pursue the work of missions and church planting and evangelism, that Jesus as the king, the king of kings, is going to crush opposition to the progress, the forward progress of his kingdom. He will take away the obstacles. He will uproot the doubts that are in the hearts and minds of those who you pray for and witness to. He will tear down every obstacle in order that his kingdom may advance. And so then, that means that we are to be bold in our proclamation and bold in our praying, bold in our praying, that Christ will truly manifest his rule in our midst. And uh, through that, through a series of conquests, bring the lost into the church and build up his kingdom. Let's pray.